top stories of the week. I talked to Kylie Moore Gilbert about hostage diplomacy, Semitic languages, and whether or not she ever got a prison tattoo. That's right, this is another editorial edition of Newsweekly. The comedy festivals are winding down finally, though, I do promise. Um, so basically what happened is I was supposed to be in Perth this week for the Perth Comedy Festival. However, I did contract COVID finally, and therefore I've had to cancel my Perth show. I will make it up to Perth listeners, however. I will be in Perth for six nights. Not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but six nights um, in June. In the meantime, enjoy my chat with writer, academic, um, all-around mind-blowingly inspiring person, Kylie Moore Gilbert. So a few um, weeks ago now, I think a, couple, I think a little over a month and a half ago or so, I was invited to the book launch um, of uh, Kylie Moore Gilbert's memoir uh, called The Uncaged Sky. So it was at the Wheeler Centre. It's like this big place in Melbourne where they have all these people who come and sit down and watch uh, people talk about their books. And and uh, it's a very literary place. And and so they'd asked me to uh, read read the memoir and then interview her about the book. And, and it was kind of an amazing book. So I thought, you know what, it's... Uh, it's one of those things where this is a story that, you know, people obviously in Melbourne and in Australia who read the book might be aware of it, but I've, I know I've got now, it's weird, I've got listeners around the world, which is very strange and scary. So I thought maybe it would be kind of cool to um, get this out to a bigger audience. But also at the same time, there's stuff in the book and stuff outside the book that I want to talk to Kylie Moore Gilbert about as well. So a um, little bit of an introduction then. Kylie Moore Gilbert is a academic and author, a writer, um, and these days um, also someone telling the story about hostage diplomacy. I'm going to get into that in a little bit. But first, hi, Kylie Moore Gilbert. Hello, Sammy Shaw. Thank you so much for speaking to News Weekly. This is me being all professional here. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about this first. The book, The Uncaged Sky, I don't want to get into it too much because there's a thousand interviews out there. You've done some amazing podcast interviews. One's way better than I will be able to do. Like if I have to recommend then the Mama Mia podcast interview with you um, is a really good one. People should track that down and listen to it. Mama Mia uh, by Mia Friedman is a podcaster as well. Uh, it's a really good one. But uh, what I want to talk to you is uh, about the entire thing that uh, leads up to this book happening, which is you're an academic focusing on what part of the world? Uh, I was teaching at the University of Melbourne, Middle Eastern history and politics. So why does someone, why is an Aussie, and I hope you're not offended that I call you an Aussie, teaching about Middle East and, and studying about the Middle East? What interested you in that part of the world? I kind of fell into it in a way. I think it is actually very Aussie or it's a very Aussie story of okay. mine, how I managed to get into the Middle East. Basically, it all started through travel and backpacking. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we know, many Australians, myself included, took a gap year or in my case, it turned out to be three gap years Oh wow! Uh, overseas to sort of backpack around the world and travel mm. and uh, see new places and experience new things following high school. And um, I did the Europe trip, of course, but then I started venturing further afield and I travelled to India, I travelled to China and I travelled to the Middle East and um, North Africa. And I just fell in love with the place. It was just such a fascinating part of the world. I, I really like languages mm -hmm. and I became interested in Semitic languages and in 
learning um, you know, about the, the history of language in the Middle East because obviously it's the cradle of civilization and some of the most ancient scripts come out of that part of the world. And I just loved that in the Middle East you have this fascinating integration of lots of aspects of scholarship that I'm really interested in, like like history, like linguistics, language, the development of religion, the development of human civilization and human mm-hmm. society. Uh, it's got amazing food. The culture is really interesting. There, there are so many fascinating natural wonders there too, not just archaeological sites and, and human history. So I don't, the more I travelled in the Middle East, the more interested I became in the place. And um, I ultimately, being a young person, a little bit confused about what I wanted to do with my life, I ultimately ended up doing a degree in Middle Eastern studies as my undergraduate degree at, at the Cam- University Cambridge. of Cambridge. Yeah. Yes, yeah. In the UK, you specialise from much earlier on yeah. than you do in Australia mm-hmm. in terms of uni- university Even studies. in America, we used to have two years of like faffing about and then two years of specialisation as your bachelor's degree. But in yes. the UK, I think you just start right away, right? Exactly, yeah. Like you'd argue in Australia, you have three or four years of faffing about. <laughs> yeah, some um, of my students are still faffing about, yes. Yes, um, but I didn't get that. And I'm actually grateful that I didn't. It was good to throw myself into something very, mm-hmm. very specific and learn in depth about that. And um, I, I just applied for that degree at Cambridge. I didn't think I'd get in, but it just sounded so interesting. It contained all the elements of of everything I was interested in. And it enabled me to learn Middle Eastern languages, but mm-hmm. also study a variety of disciplines um, within that purview of the Middle East. So, w- because one of the things that you focused on, you talk very little about this in the book, but, you know, um, it's something I've, I've, in your interviews and stuff that's come up, is uh, you, you, for example, learned Hebrew, uh, you learned Arabic, um, you have an understanding as a result of, and you spent time in Israel, you spent time in Middle Eastern st- countries, in, in, in Arabic cu- countries as well and stuff. Generally, the way we now view that portion of the world, um, we always see it as, and I'm saying this as someone who grew up in Pakistan and having a very particular point of view about the Middle East, um, we always see it as never the twain shall meet, that that um, Hebrew and Judaism are separate from Arabic and Islam. And and the Middle Eastern world is divided between the Arabs and, and the Israelis. And but your experiences and your education in that is like a synthesis of the two. Oh, gosh, they're so similar. This is the heartbreaking thing about the Israel-Palestine conflict is that, you know, many people make the point that these guys are brothers or cousins mm-hmm. or something. Um, it, it's a it's an interfamilial conflict. And even on a linguistic basis, the two languages, it's, it's as similar as... Um, Italian and Spanish or, or French and Spanish, you know, they are from the same language family. Certain um, words are mutually intelligible. And if you study the grammar of both languages, you can see that there are enormous number of features that are common and shared between the two. And certainly from the perspective of an outsider who speaks Indo-European languages and, mm-hmm. you know, really had to learn a new skill set intellectually in order to say construct a sentence in a semitic language because everything works so differently the similarities between the two languages and in many ways between the two cultures were striking so i think that this idea that hebrew and arabic or the jewish people and the muslim people are somehow two fundamentally separate entities it's it's motivated by politics Mm -hmm. it's not motivated by reality 
even if you compare Judaism and Islam, the two religions, you'll see a hell of a lot of commonality between the two. I would actually say that Islam and Judaism are more similar than either is to Christianity. Really? Yeah, okay. even though Christianity kind of comes between the I two. I thought that in, was the, the gap, right? Like because there's Judaism, which you know begets Islam, which be, sorry begets Christianity, which begets Islam. No, um, whilst chronologically, that is the case mm-hmm. that Islam is the newer of the three religions, and and Christianity comes in the middle. If you look at the practice of the religion, and you look at the doctrines of the religion, I would say that Christianity is far removed from the Mm. other two that probably is because of history um you know even though christianity started in the levant it became a european religion essentially um you know following its adoption by the roman empire and that had influences on the practice of the religion too but for example there is no codified christian religious law other, you know, we have canonical law and this sort of right. thing, but it's not. Other than the US Constitution, right, yes. <laughs> and <laughs> well, the Supreme Court or whatever's happening over there, no, right, yes. No, no, I don't other think than... you could stretch it that far. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you have Sharia law and you have halakha in, right. in Judaism and you have Sharia courts and Sharia judges and you have the same, um, you know, within Jewish mm-hmm. law. And the way that the religion is viewed and practiced is very similar. And obviously you have a lot of Jewish stories and concepts and ideas in the Quran. And I would say, as somebody who's read the Quran a few times in a prison cell, mm-hmm. had all day to study it and, and sort of think it, think it over, um, I, I felt that there was more Judaism in the Quran than Christianity, despite the the great respect for, for Jesus and Maryam mm-hmm. or Mary that, um, that Islam holds. Right. There was a lot more... I think more ancient stories and mythology in the Quran that I traced back to Judaism right. or the Old Testament, I guess, for Christians. So I don't know. I, I I really gained an appreciation of just how close these two cultures and and peoples actually are, and that's why it's so heartbreaking that yeah. they're you know currently in conflict with one another. So you 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 know you speak uh, uh, Hebrew, you speak Arabic, and then inadvertently you ended up having to learn to speak Persian. So let's kind of get into that just, you know, briefly, because that is what the focus of the book, The Uncaged Sky, is about, is you were working as an academic, you were invited to a conference in Iran, you attend this conference, and then the next thing you know, you have been arrested under charges of spying um, by the Iranian um, uh, um, IRGC, they're called, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and um, you spent two years in prisons in Iran. Um, I've never sat across, um, I haven't uh, recently at the very least, sat across from an ex-convict. Do you have any tattoos? Like teardrop tattoos (laughs) or anything? After all that lead up, that's the question you ask me? (laughs) Look, I go for the hard stuff that no one else is going to (laughs) ask. I did not have any tattoos. This is news weekly. We punch the news in the headlines weekly, yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Very weekly. Um, No, I didn't have any tattoos before going into prison, unusually Mm -hmm. for a somewhat... (laughs) youthful, probably not anymore, Australian woman. Um, and I did not get any prison tats no, while well, in there. But if someone was offering, I probably would have done it. I actually got um, a woman to pierce my ears for me with a needle um, mm-hmm. when we were in, when I was in Khachak prison. It was, um, I have two holes in the bottom lobes of my ears and they'd closed up mm-hmm. and they had this system because the earrings were technically illegal, but you could smuggle them in. Um, they had this system where the woman who doled out the... Um, the food 
you know, she was, she'd drag this huge pot of stew or soup or something into the centre of the room, sit down and with a big ladle and sort of doll it out to everybody. Uh, she also moonlighted as a ear piercer mm-hmm. um, and you could pay her with a packet of chips or, you know, a soft drink or something and she would lay you down on a pillow in her, on her lap with a, just grab a sort of needle without any numbing of your ears and slowly work through the oh. the, the closed-up hole and re-pierce it. And then because earrings weren't allowed, she'd thread with this needle um, a thick kind of, I don't know, yarn or, or, mm-hmm. or type of sewing thread through your ears and t- tie them up so that the hole wouldn't close. And I subjected myself to that because I thought, what, why, why not, you know? All right, well, look. <laughs> so if she was doing tattoos as well, right. we probably would have said, yeah, cool, well, let's do it. It's, it's a distraction, you know, at the very least, because you, you spent a total one year or a little over a year in solitary confinement in a prison called Evin. Yes. And then you spent another year in, with other prisoners in, in, in a prison called Karchak. And both of these are very notorious prisons in Iran, um, a lot of people are there. The in the end, um, I mean, obviously the the okay. I'm saying obviously, but I need to double check for our listeners. Um, so you're not a spy. We're just double checking <laughs> this now. Look, I've been through lots and lots of interviews, but now you've got me. So All right, yeah, clearly you know, I tripped you I'll up. I'll admit it to you now. I, you know, the whole thing, the whole book is a complete farce. I'm it's actually a, a very dangerous spy. Yeah, fair enough. And you can kill me with the thread that you keep in your ear. Yes, um, but. You became a, a victim of something called hostage diplomacy. It's not well known at all. And it's a bizarre thing because we know what hostages are, where people just take someone, kidnap them and, and say, give us money and we ransom and we let them go. But it's always believed that, that hostages are something that individuals do. That, you know, like a, a terrorist group might do it or, or just a, a hard up guy or in a crime movie. Countries don't do hostages, but they do, it turns out. Well, this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon. There was a time when it was quite routine for nation states or proto-nation states to take hostages. But in the 20th century in particular, with the advent of the rule of law and international rules and norms, that started to fall by the wayside, Mm -hmm. I guess. I wouldn't say it stopped happening, but certainly us in the West became accustomed to the fact that given we have this international system now and there are certain standards of behaviour that states are expected to uphold, a nation state taking somebody hostage was not Mm -hmm. the way things were supposed to work and and the way things happened. It's frowned upon. Well, it's actually illegal. I mean, you know, like we have international international law now and, um, yeah, so... But unfortunately we also have several states or probably many now um, that have reverted back to that practice Mm -hmm. because they lack other levers or mechanisms of getting what they want on the international stage and aren't willing or or able to work within the international laws and norms that have been set up. And Iran is one of those states. And Iran is actually one of the worst practitioners of this. It's a business model for them. It, It goes back to the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979, which your listeners might be familiar with. Um, following the Iranian Revolution, student activists egged on by the the new revolutionary government that was forming um, took over the US embassy in Tehran Mm. and held the embassy staff hostage for more than a year. 
this ultimately led, some would say, to Carter's failure to be re-elected in the US. It was a huge scandal. And, you know, we, we've had international law around diplomacy and, you know, the neutrality of embassies and, and the fact that embassy territory is considered almost sovereign territory of that country. Mm-hmm. So the violation of that was huge. And that really set the scene, I think, for Iran's, the post-revolutionary Iran's attitude to these international norms and laws, which was, we're going to do what we want and we're shamelessly going to flout all of these commitments that we ourselves have signed up to if it means we can gain concessions from the West or make a political point. So from that moment onwards, and that was successful, you know, that's, that's viewed as a triumph by the Iranian regime, They've started to take foreigners and Iranians who hold the nationality of other countries also hostage in order to demand concessions from those countries whose citizenship they hold. And unfortunately, I got caught up in all of that without even realising it was a thing. Mm -hmm. So because embassy staff is one thing, but academics, um, there there was a case um, around the same time you were there of two Australian backpackers who were just, you know, traveling around the world. Um, We've seen stories out of UK. um, In America, there's a Washington Post journalist, Jason Razayan. He was a a hostage, you know, diplomacy victim as well. Um, Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe in in Iran. Um, There's all of these people. And and it's not just Iran. China's been doing it as well. It turns out Russia might be doing it now as well. Yes. Um, Some of these countries have decided that this is a way forward. Uh, Iran seems to be the most prolific in this. Um, Does it work? Does it work for them? Like, clearly, they seem to be continuing. What's the benefit for Iran in this situation? Don't they look bad? Doesn't everyone go, this is horrific? I mean, they do look bad, but they look bad for all sorts of other reasons too, and they don't really seem to care much about it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like does Iran funding terrorist groups in parts of the Middle East look bad? Does Iran, uh, you know, blowing up its its own uh, Ukraine Airlines plane carrying majority Iranian citizens and killing everyone on board look bad? Yes, um, which is what they did, you know, a, a couple of years ago. Um, but they still do it. So they don't really care too much about reputational damage. Mm-hmm. And yes, it pays dividends. It works well for them. They have had enormous amounts of money unfrozen and transferred back to them. Uh, historical debts that, that hadn't been paid from pre-revolutionary times. Money that um, due to sanctions has been frozen in, in Western accounts. Also, prisoner swap deals, which is how I managed to get out of Iran, um, getting their own guys back. And in my case, it was three failed terrorists who had been convicted in Thailand of a bomb plot to um, target the Israeli ambassador in Thailand. Uh, one guy blew off his own legs, so kind of incompetent terrorists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, they were IRGC members. They were members of the organization which took me hostage. They wanted their own guys back. You know, they wanted to get these guys out of a Thai prison. So, and they did. You know, I, I haven't really seen any evidence that this behavior has been disincentivized. It's only been encouraged because every time they do it, they get what they want. So, what's the solution? You know, one of the things, America, for example, very famously always says, um, we do not negotiate with terrorists, right? Um, and that means that if you take an American hostage, then they're just not going to negotiate with you. In theory, that's the, you know, that's the, that's the advertising. And many other countries say the same thing. 
but at the same time if you like if i am i am an australian citizen and i am also a pakistani citizen um if i was taken hostage by a country i would really like one of my either of my two countries to fight for me and get me back but by doing so by helping the hostages you're encouraging the process of hostage diplomacy to continue what's the alternative like should countries you know should uk for example say we're not we're not negotiating keep them and then those people live in jail forever or what happens this is the conundrum this is it's a really really difficult problem to resolve mm-hmm. and this is one reason why we've been so terrible at resolving it because these are real people's lives these are innocent people who through no fault of their own have been caught up in a geopolitical diplomatic game that they you know have no control over and their lives and the lives of their families are ruined and as you mentioned our government has a responsibility to protect its citizens and you know in my case i'm a british citizen and an australian citizen and as a prisoner i expected my government to negotiate and get me out and i do believe that that is necessary mm-hmm. but at the same time governments can actually take steps to disincentivize this practice and to punish it when it occurs and we're not seeing that we're seeing each western country because it's predominantly western countries who are targeted going it alone trying to reinvent the wheel each time not even consulting with one another and often taking steps which damage other partner mm-hmm. allied nations or make it more likely that people from other allied nations will be taken hostage as a result. I think saying that countries don't negotiate with terrorists or don't pay ransom is incorrect. There's a grey area there for sure. Is it paying ransom if you pay a historic debt of billions of dollars or millions mm-hmm. to an organisation that's classified as a terror group but that that money doesn't originally belonged to you but was frozen as a result of debt that dates back to prior to that group's existence mm-hmm. which is what we've seen in the US and the UK recently you're still putting billions of dollars in the hands of terror organizations who are killing their own citizens on mass and funneling money and weapons to other terror groups in other parts of the middle east which then go on to attack other innocent people so this i think is a very problematic practice and the precedent that was set by the obama administration following the jcpoa nuclear deal of 2015 it's i understand why they did it and it's important to get people home but unfortunately that led to the iranians going okay well we've succeeded with the us what other countries also mm-hmm. have these historical mm-hmm. debts that we can also blackmail and and get this money unfrozen and sent to us through hostage taking so i do think that coordination on that front could actually disincentivize and draw red lines around this practice I think the international community should say no more money or funds will be paid to Iran as a result of hostage taking. Prisoner swap deals are a thornier issue and I think it's actually morally perhaps more palatable mm-hmm. although still you know we have now a case of Hamid Nouri who is on trial in Sweden for war crimes for his role in killing thousands of innocent political prisoners in Iran in the 1980s. Sweden he traveled to Sweden they arrested him and under the principle of international jurisdiction they're trying him for war crimes mm-hmm. now 
Iran directly as a result of that trial is saying they will execute a Swedish citizen, Swedish-Iranian man called Ahmed Reza Jalali, who is a doctor who travelled to Iran to visit Tehran University, very similar to what happened to me. They've given him the death penalty for spying and they're basically using him to extort the Swedish government over this man on trial for war crimes. Mm. Now you have a situation where you have a completely innocent man who probably will get exchanged in the end for a man, for a war criminal. Now is that just? Is that fair? Is it fair that I, as a completely innocent woman, was exchanged for three convicted terrorists? Right. You know, in... For justice to be served, that war criminal and those terrorists should rot in prison. So morally speaking, any of these deals are are very problematic, but we have to make some sort of arrangement to get these people free. So, I mean, this is the conundrum. I think international cooperation and cooperation between allied Western countries over this issue is necessary to draw red lines over what we will and what we won't consider when we're deal making. I also think, you know... So hang on, okay, okay, if sorry to interrupt, but like, why can't, and this may sound like a terrible idea, it probably is a terrible idea, why can't America do the same? Why can't Sweden do the same? Why can't they just go and grab the Iranian ambassador and say, all right, now you're in jail over here, and unless you let our guy go, we're not going to let your guy go. Because we are better than that. We have the rule of law in our countries. Our judicial system is independent of politics and government. If we told our judges okay, we've grabbed this Iranian dude Mm -hmm. who's also innocent, by the way. Please convict him of X, Y, Z crime so that we can leverage him in a prisoner's walk. Our judges will, right. Well, not that our judges wouldn't do it. I'm sure, well, it really depends, but they shouldn't do it Mm -hmm. because our judges are independent of politics. The second we start eroding the rule of law and the rules-based system, not only internationally but within our own countries, we become just as bad as them. That's a terrible slippery slope to go down. You know... There are plenty of Iranians who are arrested in Western countries for violating sanctions. You know, we had several even here in Australia who were arrested at the behest of the US for trying to send military, sanctioned military technology to Iran, probably acting, you know, for Iranian regime officials or whatever. In this case, I think it's completely legitimate to trade these people who were arrested for mm-hmm. um, committing such crimes with prisoners that are innocently held in Iran. Right. But I don't think we should take the step of arresting innocent people and <laughs> giving them bogus charges because like I said, we're, we're just idea. as bad. Right, you yes. know? Um, all right, so now we're at the situation where these countries, are, uh, you know, Iran, for example, is one, Russia is doing it as well. Um, when you came back, when after your prison swap deal, you returned to Australia, you got involved with something that I had not heard of before. It's um, called the Magnitsky um, Rule or Magnitsky Law. Um, Mm -hmm. What is that? Where did it originate? So this is one mechanism through which Western countries can attempt to address some of these grievous grievous, um, cases of Mm -hmm. hostage-taking and other international crimes. Um, Also corruption. It's basically legislation that came out of a case in Russia involving the torture and murder of a Russian lawyer called Sergei Magnitsky for his acting on behalf of the British-American financier Bill Browder um, investigating a corruption case in Russia. And 
Browder has travelled the world and advocated for these laws and done a fantastic job of getting Western countries to adopt them, which basically allows us to sanction individuals in countries that are perpetrating human rights abuses and gross corruption. And rather than, you know, we have now under international law mechanisms to sanction countries themselves. For example, Iran is heavily sanctioned right now. And sanctions against Russia after the Russia. Ukraine invasion have been a big topic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's the country itself. So it, Iran, for example, shouldn't be selling its, you know, it is, we know now, but mm. um, it's technically not allowed to sell its oil on the international markets and all Iranian companies have to operate under those sanctions. The Iranian Central Bank is sanctioned, for example. These aren't people. These are state institutions or, or companies, entities. So now we can target a particular individual in Iran, for example, and sanction that person. I, for example, have provided... And this is separate from like an Interpol red notice, right? Because normally that's the mechanism used if you want to sanction a person, so to speak, is you have to... In, you know. Interpol Red Notice is an international arrest warrant. Right. So if you have a trial in your country of somebody who's committed a crime in your country and they've fled abroad or they're, mm. they're not in that country, you can try through Interpol to have them arrested and brought back right. um, to stand trial. So the Magnitsky so that's is different, totally different. Th- this is not putting someone on trial or arresting someone. This is freezing their assets abroad and putting a travel ban on them. Mm-hmm. It's people that we won't ever be able to get our hands on but ensuring that they cannot profit from their human rights abuses and other crimes in Western countries or in states that have adopted Magnitsky legislation um, by funneling ill-gotten gains abroad, which they, you know, money laundering, which they always do, particularly Russians, Iranians, you know, there are so many cases of this, of them having money via family members, via proxy companies in Western Mm -hmm. states. So freezing those assets and preventing them from travelling abroad. Uh, which is, you know, it's not necessarily going to stop them at home, but it's some sort of leverage against them, in particular getting their name sanctioned and having them on a list mm-hmm. outs them um, as a human rights abuser, makes their name public. And often this naming and shaming of the person can have a big impact too. So, I mean, I've provided a list of names of people who I know and it's difficult to know their actual names, but some of them we have identified, who I know participated in my hostage-taking and psychological torture in prison to the Australian government uh, and to the British government as well and requested that they sanction some of these individuals under Magnitsky laws. I don't know whether they will or not, but I hope that they will. And I think it's a form of redress. It's Mm -hmm. not going to stop the practice, but it will ensure that perhaps some of these guys will think twice, especially abusing foreigners who they know are from countries that have Magnitsky legislation because perhaps, you know, they, they will fear being sanctioned in the future. So at this point, um, the people who arrested you, the people who put you in jail, who held you for two years, that's the closest you've got as a tool to find justice uh, against them. I, I don't think I'll ever see any justice from what happened to me, but as an abstract concept, mm-hmm. it's one of the only forms of redress that we have right now. And finally, just before we wrap things up, you know, you've you've had this experience. You've you've now returned to Australia. 
You've written this book, um, uh, The Uncaged Sky. It, it details your entire experience of going through this and, and, and the two years in Iran and everything you experienced. And, and there's some remarkable stories there and everything. You're also involved in, um, you know, there, there are friends in Iran that you made in prison who are still back there. Um, and you're, and you're, do you, are you allowed to talk to them? How does it work? Like, can you reach out to people in Iran still or, or is that not allowed anymore? Oh, yes. I'm in touch with a lot of people in Iran. It's dangerous for them. We're probably being monitored. I don't know. I have mm. to assume that every time I'm in touch with someone, I am being monitored. But I made a lot of friends in prison. Some of my friends in prison are out temporarily, permanently. And some of those who are still in prison, I'm in touch with their families. You know, we went through a lot together mm -hmm. and some of them I consider to be my sisters. So it's important to me to remain in touch with them and support them in any way I can. Well, thank you very much, Kylie Mo Gilbert. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me on, Sammy. All right, so that was my chat with Kylie Moore Gilbert. As I said before during the interview, her book Uncaged Sky, The Uncaged Sky, is out and available right now in bookstores in around in around Australia. I believe it's available in the United States of America. If not yet, then soon. Uh, United Kingdom, the book is available over there uh, as well as other parts of the world as well. I'm sure you can order it online. I don't need to tell you how to get books. You know how to get books. Get the goddamn book. Why are you quizzing me about how to get books? Jesus, I'd have to do everything for you guys. Uh, here's what I will do for you guys is tell you that you can find me on patreon.com slash Sammy Shah. That's patreon.com slash S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H. I'll be back next week with a more traditional news weekly episode in the final week of the Australian election. So it's going to be a shit show, of course. And then we'll continue back with News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. 